On a dark wooded road, you wander through the night. You're familiar with your surroundings as you step so surely on. But tonight is different. The snap of a twig catches you off guard, and you begin to hear something. It's low at first, but there's, def but there's definitely something there. You know you can hear it. Though the fear within you courses through your being, screaming for you to run and find safety. There's something else there, inside, inside. compelling your curiosity. Something inside craves to, to know. know more. You're, You're listening, listening to, whispers, to whispers in the night. Hey, and welcome back to Whispers in the Night. I'm Sang Peng Duong Det, and you are tuning in for part two of this month's episode on The River Crew. For those of you tuning in, if you missed the first part, this segment is where we showcase a fictional, audio-drama-style presentation on a story that is inspired by the cult that we spoke about in part one. Now, in part one, I talked about the four men that would later become known as the Chicago Rippers, or just the Ripper Crew. They were a satanic cult that would kidnap women of Chicago, usually sex workers, and commit terrible acts of mutilation, torture, cannibalism, and even murder. This cult would also bring the women they'd abducted into a satanic chapel that was constructed in the attic of their leader, a man by the name of Robin Gecht, to commit these terrible acts. In all instances, these men would, if, if they did not murder them, they'd kick their victims from the van that they'd abducted them in, in a remote or deserted area and leave them for dead. Because of the women they hadn't killed but left instead to die, the Ripper crew would find their demise when a survivor would tell police and investigators every detail of her gruesome experience. Most of these men got the justice that they deserved. One received the death penalty, and actually it was the last official death carried out by the state of Illinois, while two are still serving their time. Unfortunately, one member, a man by the name of Thomas Cocorelius, has since been released from prison after serving about half of his sentence for good behavior, as well as for his cooperation with police in providing information that helped them to bring down the Chicago Rippers in the end. That brings us up to speed to tonight's story. Tonight's story is one that I've been meaning to put out for uh, nearly two years. I had reached out to the writer Meg Williams, who I think is phenomenal as a writer, when I had first thought up what I had wanted to do for this episode back then, back two years ago. As you listen to tonight's story, you might, you might find yourself wondering how it has anything to do with our first episode. And I, I definitely don't want to spoil anything, but I will say that Meg Williams did a phenomenal job at keeping this work of fiction inspired by the events of part one. And she did it in a, in a very incredible and, uh, and shocking way. And I'll just leave it at that. Now, with all of that left behind us, all I have left to say is to, uh, I guess, just sit back and enjoy the story. You will be surprised. Uh, how surprised, you might ask? Well, maybe a little bit more surprised than how you're about to feel when I tell you that we will get to the story right after a quick break. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. 
Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be alright. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yes, yeah, sounds like someone fell. <laughs> This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Alright, hey, welcome back. It's Sang Ping Duong Det. You're listening to Whispers in the Night. And I'm not going to take up much of your time. We're just going to jump straight into the story. So without further ado, here is Blush by Meg Williams. Blush by Meg Williams. Ever since I was a little girl, my favorite color was pink. My parents would take me to church on Sundays, and I'd wear frothy lace dresses and shades of bubblegum and rose, ballet slipper and blush. I'd sip orange juice from white paper cups and stare longingly at a plate of chocolate chip cookies piled high on their yellow plastic platter that sat just out of my reach on a long reception table. I was allowed exactly two cookies after service so I wouldn't ruin my lunch. My parents never ate any cookies. They told me they'd had communion, and that was all the nourishment they needed on Sunday mornings. At five, I didn't quite believe them. The church basement where we gathered after service always smelled damp and stale. Like old people, I thought to myself. Even though I liked the receptions we had, where all my extended aunts and uncles and cousins would all flock together and talk about the ongoings of the week, I preferred the church itself. It smelled like spices to me. When it came time for my first communion, I convinced my mother to let me wear a delicate flower crown with baby's breath and tiny pink rosebuds. In my snowy white dress and wrist-length lace gloves, I felt like a fairy princess, tiptoeing down the middle aisle of my church with my Sunday school class. I remember being underwhelmed by the taste. My mother wrapped her arms around me, safe and snug, and reassured me that it wasn't about flavor. It was about the sacrament itself. I was a member of the true church now, and my parents were so proud of me. Later, I pressed the tiny pink petals of my flower crown into the pages of my diary. When I was 16, they were joined by the pink carnation Mark gave me for Valentine's Day. Mark was on the football team and the swim team, and he could talk circles around my father, which was a feat in itself. I'd sit in the living room with them, tucked small on the green velvet footrest next to my dad's armchair, and listen to them boom loudly together about the teams and players and statistics that I just didn't understand. I wrote in my diary that night that Mark kissed me for the first time, but it felt sodden somehow. It felt like my fairy tale ambitions had been left out in the rain, and all the pages were warped and rippled. 
He made my lips taste like the sour cranberries from the juice he was always drinking to, quote, cleanse his system, and there was a lot more spit than I was expecting. He told me he couldn't see me anymore on a Sunday morning just before my family left for church. Sorry. He told me with a half shrug. One of the patches on his letterman jacket wasn't attached properly and it was curling up at the edges. I think I like somebody else. Someone else turned out to be a girl on the cheerleading squad who slept with her hair in curlers and wore her mother's lipstick to school and stopped going to Sunday service after she'd lost her virginity when we were 14. For weeks afterwards, I'd see them making out under the bleachers and I'd have to admit my jealousy and confession. After I broke up with Mark, no, after Mark dumped me, the church closed ranks around me in a soft, warm embrace, and I was allowed to eat as many chocolate chip cookies as I wanted. You're a beautiful girl, they told me, voices calm and assured. You're special. You're You're going going to to find find the the one. They sounded so confident, and how could I doubt them? Especially not when a few years later I met Matt, who was different from Mark in every possible way. With his skinny shoulders and his tweed overcoats, he broadcasted to the world that he was going to be a doctor without ever saying a word. He kissed along the curves of my hands and my neck, and he told me all the names of the bones, but in the end, I couldn't convince him to go to church with me. I just don't have that kind of faith. He told me bluntly, spearing the last bit of scrambled egg from my plate with his fork. The diner we always met at for breakfast was crowded and filled with the low chatter and clink of cutlery. I couldn't stop toying anxiously with the pink plastic heart pendant he'd given me. I couldn't remember what the occasion had been. Medicine is facts, you know? Don't you need to have faith that your facts will save somebody, though? I countered, surprising both of us with the force of my voice. That wasn't the quiet, conservative girl he'd been dating. That power came to you from above, our priest told me later as we sat together as a family in the basement reception hall. Matt hadn't called in days. You are being guided in your faith, my child. Keep going, and you will find joy. Joy showed up driving a pickup truck from his uncle's mechanic shop and wearing a perfect pair of Levi jeans one summer afternoon when my car broke down. Luke called me peaches because of my strawberry blonde hair, gave me a discount on my car repairs, and bought me cherry chip ice cream on our first date. The Bible is like poetry, he told me from the front seat of his truck parked down by the lake. If ever there were a land flowing with milk and honey, Surely it was a place that included Luke's voice where he recited quotes he had memorized. Thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body. He recited, scorchingly at me in the July heat. The flesh of thy sons and thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. He grinned sharp while my mouth went dry. How metal is that? He leaned across the middle seat of his truck, mischief sparkling in his eyes, brighter than the moonlight on the lake. Shakespeare said it too. Holy Palmer's kiss. You're mixing your metaphors, I whispered. I don't want to give away how frightened I was, how excited, how alive. Maybe. He agreed. His hair fell into his eyes and I was going, going, (sighs) gone. But you should kiss me anyway, Peaches. In the last sticky sweet days of August, I'd pad barefoot through the empty house he'd inherited when his mother died the soles of my feet sinking into the dusty shag carpeting. He'd come in from working long hours in the shop, 
smelling like grease and stale cigarettes, and he'd wrap his arms snug around my waist. We'd drink lemonade and eat Oreos and dance to the radio with the windows wide open for the neighbors to complain about. He bought me a Bible for my birthday with a baby pink cover and rose gold leaf, and I kissed him so hard he nearly fell back into the grocery store sheet cake he'd picked up on his way home from work. You're a gift just for me. He'd tell me later like he was finishing a sentence, pressing me down into cool linen sheets of his bed. I'm never letting you go, Katie. Never. I told my giggling friends at church, this was it. Luke was the one. And soon we were going to be picking a date. A spring ceremony, maybe. Not long after I told them, things started to... change. To begin with, Luke started working late, without warning. We're swamped at the shop. He'd tell me, kissing me roughly on the top of my head as he slumped heavily into one of the metal patio chairs that we used as kitchen furniture. Uncle Rob's turning into a lazy fuck. He gets me to do all the hard work while he sits in his office and collects money. I picked absently at one of the microwave meals I had made both of us. The dry slab of meat looked sad and gray next to the fluorescent orange of the macaroni. I didn't get home cooking anymore, save for those same cookies after church. Luke worked Sundays and was never able to go with me. (sighs) Isn't there anyone else who can pick up shifts? He shoveled forkfuls of dinner into his mouth, grease-stained hands grabbing at the thick plastic cups of milk I'd poured. No one else is good enough. He coughed, making a face. This shit's gone warm. Sorry, I said, small. His expression cleared almost immediately. Sorry, Peaches. He apologized, reaching over to squeeze my wrist gently. I'm just tired. He made an exaggerated sign of the cross over himself, grinning lopsided at me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, whoever eats the fastest gets the most. He wolfed his dinner down as quickly as possible, and I scraped the plates into the trash and reminded myself to ask my mother for my grandmother's cookbook. Next, there were his clothes. What do you keep getting on your shirts? I found myself asking him more than once over a long, dry fall, scrubbing with boric powder at the deep brown stains that folded themselves into the elbows of his plaid button-ups. They came up like little flakes, but the stain in the fabric remained. Oh. He peeked his head around the corner of the hall at me, hair damp and tousled from his shower. Something passed over those baby blues of his. It's rust. Some of these pieces of shit cars are falling apart at the seams. I scratched my nail over the damp fabric, trying to get the stain to give. I don't think it's going to come out. I think you're going to need to do this yourself. You'll get it out. The back of his head fell into shadow as he walked down the hall away from me. You can do anything. My hands grew pruned and wrinkled from the scrubbing. The stain remained. And at last, there was the night he brought home the van. Katie, come here. He called to me in the sharp crispness of an October night when it was just barely warm enough for him to work in the garage with the door open. I slipped on a pair of his shoes on my way out the door to keep my bare feet protected against the cold concrete. What is that? I asked when I came to the mouth of the garage, its concrete interior flooded with the yellow light from the single bulb he kept swinging from the ceiling. Isn't she beautiful? He asked, grinning widely over the chipped brown paint from the beaten old van's hood. Uncle Rob got me a good deal. I think I can get her to start. Why would you want to? I was skeptical, circling the van like a wild animal. 
There was something about the darkened headlights, filled on the insides with fly corpses, that set my teeth on edge. I can start going to job sites now, he said, banging a fist good-naturedly on the hood as he moved around to join me. He'd been coming home so tired and irritable lately. It was refreshing to see him in such a good mood. I'm gonna rip everything out of the back so I can store my tools. And I can start picking you up from church. Really show those suit and tie types the kind of riffraff you're dating when I've got this beauty in tow. I made a face at him and I circled the van. The double doors on the back were open just enough to reveal a filthy mattress on the floor inside with rusted springs sticking out like reaching wire fingers. There's a mattress back there? Luke's laugh was warm and loud. <laughs> yeah, I think the guy that my uncle got it from was living out before a bit with his girlfriend. He took me under his warm arm and kissed me gently. Don't worry, he said softer now. I know you're too good for that kind of seduction. I didn't notice the emphasis he had made. Not then. Not until I found the knife. It wasn't... Old isn't the right word. Well used, maybe. Worn in. We'd been carrying supplies into the garage. Things he'd brought home from the shop to work on the van with. It was like he wanted me to find it nestled in with his screwdrivers and hammers. There was a large serrated kitchen knife in with Luke's tools. And something clicked in place in my head. Soft and assured. It was like the sound of fracturing glass. He turns to grin at me in the watery winter sunlight, his breath clouding around his head like a ghostly halo. He was chipper in a way I hadn't seen him in weeks. We should order pizza tonight. I can't remember what I answered. The next day, instead of going home to my parents, I escaped to my church. The church basement held the same aura of safety it always had when I was growing up. The same stale, damp smell, the same wood-paneled walls, the same photographs pinned up on the bulletin board of different congregation members over the years. The long table we used for after-service reception was folded up and neatly placed against the wall, and the fluorescent lights were switched off, leaving only the weak daylight that managed to filter down from the staircase. My pulse felt loud and insistent in my ears, and I nearly tripped over the uneven spot where the linoleum turned to carpet halfway across the room. Katie? Luke's voice came from upstairs, strange and echoing in the cavernous church that occupied the ground floor of the building. I shivered where I stood. Where else could he have looked for me? Where else, indeed? My breath was raspy in my throat, and I pressed the palm of my hand to my lips hard like I could press the anxiety that was sending my hands shaking and my limbs cold. Facing the stairs, I backed away, trying to pull myself into the shadows as much as possible. I wanted my mother. Katie! Luke called again, and he was closer to the stairs this time. His footsteps were heavy on every step, and I could see his elegant fingers, stained with grease, curling around the old banister as he descended toward me. I know you're down here, Peaches. Your car's out back. My back hit the edge of the wooden podium we'd kept stored for graduation ceremonies and birthday speeches. Reaching it meant I'd reached the far back wall, and there was nowhere else for me to go. Katie. Luke's voice was calmer now, more himself, with his footsteps level on the ground as he headed straight toward me. Babe, what are you doing? I'm sorry. 
I thought I whispered, but I couldn't be sure. It sounded like an apology, but it felt like a prayer. When the knife slid with a wet, tearing sound across Luke's throat, it sounded like my name. The lights came on in a flash of brightness, fluorescent and cold as it illuminated the sharp shadows against every edge of the room. The floor had been cleared, which meant the symbols that had been painstakingly engraved and painted on the floor stood out even more. Luke's knees buckled on top of them with like twin cracks of gunshots. My father, revealed now in the sterile brightness, turned the knife over in his hand to offer it to me, handle first. Quickly, sweetheart. You know what to do. My shaking hands took the well-worn kitchen knife, and I swallowed hard, trying to moisten my dry throat. <laughs> I couldn't do this. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do this alone. Closing my eyes at the sight of Luke, his torn throat jagged and dark and pulsing onto the smooth flooring, I began to pray and a steady voice I'd never possessed in my life took a hold of my throat, strong and steady and sure. Peace filled me, and the words I'd known from my childhood flowed easily. You who have been found necessary to purify, I intoned, moving toward Luke with the knife. You who have been known by our master as a sinner, as a blasphemer, as a non-believer. We accept your sacrifice in communion and purify you in flesh, by bone, and by blood. Luke lay gargling at my feet. He was clutching at his throat as he suffocated, pressing his long, elegant fingers to the wound like he could press the flesh back together. I tilted my head slightly, watching him. In hindsight, I'm not sure if I was hesitating or admiring the way he seemed invincible to me right up until this moment. It felt holy, watching him struggle to breathe, something he had taken for granted his entire life. I was witnessing possibly the first true human experience Luke was ever going to have. For a moment, I forgot the rest of the church surrounded us, strong and silent, and waiting. Katie, I heard my mother's voice behind me, soft and encouraging. Go on, honey. Luke's eyes were wide and pleading. Could blood loss change someone's eye color? They seemed paler than before. I breathed out, slow and steady. It was working. He was being purified right before my eyes. My family had been right. They had always been right. I baptize you on behalf of our family, I said, and brought the knife down into his strong, muscled chest. It surprised me how hard I'd needed to push. And over time, I'd get better at it, but this first time was messy, with the wet, snapping noises a lot more pronounced. His blood was warm and viscous on my hands, my wrists. On behalf of the church, 
on behalf of the one true master who stamps out non-believers and brings his true followers into the light at the end of all things. I put my body weight into the knife, pressing down, 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 and Luke was making less and less and less noise. His clogged gargling had turned to wet, soft whimpers, like a bird. I sanctify you by flesh, by bone, and by blood. I was having a harder time finding what I wanted than I thought I would. I didn't expect the blood to spurt out this much, and I was going to hear about this mess later from my mother. I did not, however, lick my lips when I felt warm blood on them. Revered are you, Master, overseer of all that is created and undone. My church joined me in prayer, their voices joining mine while Luke twitched and thrashed on the ground. Through your power and mercy we offer you this vessel, birthed and ended by human hands. Through your power it becomes the food of life, and in holy communion we shall remain eternal. It took a while. Luke wasn't making noises anymore. The kitchen knife was slippery in my hand, and the sinews weren't at all like my father described them. I'd never cut a steak this tough before. It was too late to doubt the tool I'd chosen, and later I'd agree with my family that it had been the right decision. I simply needed more practice. It wasn't until after that I'd noticed where Luke's hand had finally fallen and shuddered to stillness. Laying, outstretched, it seemed as though at the last moment he'd stopped trying to grab at his throat, at the floor, at anything at all, and he simply reached out to me, reaching for my hand. <laughs> and that made me happy, I later wrote in my journal. It meant he'd understood Master, may it please you to accept this gift that we offer you with humble and hopeful hearts. My father intoned behind me in his rich, warm baritone. I was stained with rich blood nearly to the elbows, on my knees and breathing heavy. A buzzing filled my head like nothing I'd experienced before, and I gasped around the feeling, opening myself to it. This is what it's meant to feel like, I thought in ecstasy. I felt wild and unchained, like I could run across oceans or leap off of mountains. Every hymn I had ever heard was singing praises in my brain, and I flexed my hands, tacky with Luke's drying blood. I put my fingers to my lips, and I tasted rust. Not long afterwards, on a warm spring day, the new class of faithful children enter the bright and hushed archways of our beloved church. Sunshine filters gold and soft through the high arched windows and the smell of spices and flowers lays thick in the air. When I was little, I assumed that they were used to cover up the smell of the communion. Well, now, a full member of the church, I know better. The smell is one of the best parts. One by one, little boys and little girls in communion white proceeded up the middle aisle, their little hands sheathed in snowy white gloves. They stand in pairs together and wait as we, the full members of the church, take our communion first. Bread and wine, our children are told from birth, aren't good enough anymore. Look at the world around us. 
Being symbolic isn't enough. If we want to reach heaven, we need to receive the communion of the true body and the true blood. One by one, we each take a small pink piece of what had been Luke Owen's own beating heart. I'd pressed my ear against his chest as we slept and listened to his heart beating. Now, I take it in my hands, making him a part of me forever. And he'd be a part of me just as much as Mark was, and Matt, and countless other sinners who had been purified and saved by the faithful of our church. I put the raw flesh on my tongue, and it pops like cranberries and fireworks. All across the room, little salmon-colored jewels are pressed into the open waiting palms of every man, woman, and child assembled in the church. Together, we prepare for the gates of heaven. Together, we take those perfect morsels of communion, more pure than any bread or wine could ever be. White gloves are stained dusty rose, and lips take on a brighter berry shade as we partake in communion. And a thought comes to me, suddenly, and I'm nearly laughing with joy. No wonder pink has always been my favorite color. <laughs> Hey, thanks so much for tuning in for this episode of Whispers in the Night. It is an absolute pleasure to be here doing this for you again. Your support as my humble listeners is truly, it's truly what drives this one-man band type of production of a show. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so in a number of ways. The first and most important is by clicking that like or subscribe button, follow, uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, and by leaving a five-star review. This not only helps the show to be found, but it also shows people how you, as my listener, feel about this podcast. If you want to help the show out financially, you can support the show on Patreon or Coffee. You can also buy some of my merch over at TeePublic. And it all goes to a good cause. All funds uh, go to my upgrades uh, when it comes to equipment, recording space that I'm currently planning to construct, research, you name it. Of course, I'll leave links to all of what I've mentioned so far in the show's description. Thanks also to Meg Williams, the brilliant author behind tonight's story, Blush. Your work is incredible, and it means a lot to the show that you were willing to um, take time out of your busy life to write Blush for tonight's production. Performers in tonight's audio drama are Q, Lindsay Boyd, Rico Brooks, Jeff Stallings, and myself. Thanks to all of you for your patience with me regarding production, as well as over your 
punctuality and just overall flexibility. I also wanted to just emphasize just how grateful I am to Lindsay and Q. You have both been with me since the very beginning, way back in 2016, and you've always done nothing but great work for me. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Also, this show is a tremendous project that I undertake independently, and I could always use a hand with scouting stories, audio engineering, voice acting, or even just helping to manage my social media. If you think that you have what it takes, send me a message on social media, or you can just email me at whispersinthenightpodcast at gmail.com. A special thanks goes out to Sor Narnia, Aaron Lillis, Q, Lindsay Boyd, and Sarah Lee for performing our podcast intro. Music in this audio production is by Secession Studios, Plastic Patina, and Kevin MacLeod. Last week, we aired our segment, True Paranormal Story, featuring the incredible Sarah Poulton and her true paranormal experiences. If you'd like to share a story of your own, if you have something or know somebody, you can absolutely do so by shooting an email over to whispersinthenightpodcast at gmail.com as well. Tune in October 1st for our next episode on the cryptids known as Melonheads. Anyway, that's enough of this Minnesota goodbye. Thank you so much and have a good night.